Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're continuing in a series of looking at the kingdom of God. And this passage today is going to be one that I hope is a, is a challenge for each one of us, but also a blessing of, of, of just how good it is to be in the kingdom of God. Now, before we, we dive into the text today, I want to tell you a few things that I'm really excited about that are on the horizon for us as a church. Um, one... Um, effort that we are going to be doing beginning in mid-August is going to be called Life Together. And it's a, it's a, it really kind of captures the essence, that, that phrase, life together, of what we're after. Because I kind of have tasted a little bit this summer and have seen just how good it is when we share life together. One of the, the big impacts of, of joy for me as a dad and, and as a pastor over the summer was being able to go to the kids camp um, that, that Faye Scott um, put together for our kids, our youngest kids from first through fifth grade to be able to go to. And while we were there, one of the things that I loved the most was seeing my boys get to interact with Frank Catalanata. Frank, are you in this room right now? Where are you, brother? I don't know if he's in here right now. But, but getting to see my kids with Frank, who is two generations ahead of them in age, um, was pure joy. And to see his love for them, see him who has um, military experience as a Marine, um, to be able to tell them about how to keep their area clean, you know, like keep their stuff in their suitcase, make your bed, you know, like keep your bunk nice and, and neat and stuff. I love seeing that interaction with Frank, but then I love seeing Frank just running with the kids, you know, and, and concerned, you know, like hoping that Frank has a good heart, you know, um, because I didn't want to do CPR out there on the field, but Frank was all in. He, he, was, he was giving it all, leaving it all on the field with the kids. And as I thanked Frank for that, he said, Pastor, we have to. Our children are the future. Our children are the future of this church. They're the future for this nation. Um, they're the future missionaries and pastors. Um, you know, our, our kids are the future. So, I mean, I've got to. And it's that idea of, of life together, of sharing life together, of one generation speaking to another, of, of one generation pouring their life into the other that we're after with life together. It's not just about programming. It's not just about filling a time slot on Sunday nights because that's the last thing any of us need. But I do believe that we are after together something more Something that is going to impact for we that have children in the home of wanting our kids to be shaped and not to be the statistic that four out of every five fall away from the faith after they graduate high school. That's not what we want. That's not why we're here today. That's not why you brought your kids here and why they're coming to youth group and in the children's ministry is because you're hoping they'll fall away when they turn 18. You're wanting something real, and I want that too. But we've got to be strategic about that. We have to intentionally build our lives to share life together. So in an intentional way, we're planning to start doing that on Sunday nights. It's going to look like dinner together. It's going to look like a, a myriad of activities together um, where one generation is pouring their life into another. And so I hope that you will consider that and to consider if it's worth your time, worth the investment of your life into another like it was for Frank to pour into my boys and, and so many other kids there. Do you want to be part of what is ahead? That really is the question. And I hope that you do. 
And I hope that you will be part of what we do in life together as it begins in mid-August. So that's on the horizon. I'm so grateful for all that has happened. Um, Sandra Eason, uh, somewhere in the room right now, um, she told me this morning that we've got a, a business meeting. I like to call them family meetings because that's really what it is. It's just, just time together for the church family to, to, to do business in an orderly way. But she said, I grabbed one of those packets and I actually read it this time. And man, there's a lot of great things that are going on. That, that, that we're part of and that we're doing, I encourage you, grab that little packet and read it. There's ministry reports in there, and this summer has been full of intentional, strategic ministry opportunities like Vacation Bible School, Youth Camp, Kids Camp. These aren't just things to fill the calendar. These are strategic times that have a big impact in the life of, of, of families. I mean, it's kind of the same reason you do family vacations. It's at a time to step away, to invest in a heavier way into family, to then step back so that you're stronger as you go forward into a busy season. And that's exactly what we've done as a church. And so I'm so grateful for you. There are many of you that have that fatigued look on your face right now. And it's because you've been all in this summer. So thank you for giving of your time, uh, for, for volunteering, for doing so much to pour into the life of the church. I know that, that it's going to be worth it. And so please continue that effort. Consider life together. So this morning we continue with this idea of the kingdom of God. And in the passage we're going to read in Matthew chapter 18 today, it, it, the phrase is the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is, is that we, we do want something so much more. We want to experience what the kingdom is all about. And part of it we're going to see here is about life together. But part of the aspects about our life together are parts that kind of rub against the cultural grain. Uh, we're going to see that today because part of our cultural grain today is, you know, don't be judgy. Don't, don't, don't judge others. And so what we've taken that to mean is you don't ever tell somebody else that they're doing something wrong, including in the church. That if somebody's sinning, well, that's them, and, and who are you to judge? Well, we're going to look today at what God says about, about what it is to be in the kingdom and what it is to have a, a kingdom ethic and a way of life together. Uh, we're going to look at the significance of people because in our culture, it says, well, you know, the more resource you have, in other words, you know, the, the deeper your pockets, um, the more valuable you are as a person. If you can contribute a lot to an organization or to a church or whatever, then you have value. But if you can't, well, hopefully you can at least pray. And, and that's a cultural way of looking at things. And, and God's word says, no, there, there's a different way in the kingdom of value of people, the least of these, the one that we're going to look at today. But, but it all starts with a question. And so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Matthew chapter 18 to see the question that starts all of this in this passage today that the disciples have for Jesus. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18, we read from the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Let me pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in such clear and illustrative language, you help us to understand the kingdom. That you're not wanting it to be mysterious of what life together looks like, 
But instead, you are calling us to childlike humility, to a childlike love, to childlike forgiveness. So Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth here at First Baptist as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Will this be on the test? Anybody in education in the room? Anybody ever been asked that question? Will this be on the test? Most teachers hate that question. And it's not that they hate that their students want to be prepared for exams. They hear what's actually behind the question, and that's what they hate. That they hear, is this important? Do I really need to know this? Do I ever need to consider this again? That's what the teacher hears the student saying in that moment when the question is posed, will this be on the test? In the same way, Jesus is posed with a question, but he hears what's behind the question. He knows what's going on in the heart of his disciples and everything that follows. I think it's best to take chapter 18 as an entire unit to be able to really look at and to see what's going on and how the answer, the, the explanation that Jesus gives, how it helps us to understand what was really going on in their hearts and really, I think, to understand what's really going on in our hearts because we're not much removed, even though it's thousands of years we're still asking questions, and our questions give us away. He says, that's the first thing. Our questions say much about us. That was the truth then. That's the truth today. The questions that we're asking say a lot about us. But you know, I don't find that today I hear many people asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's not a question that I'm hearing very much. There's not this desire to be great in the kingdom. Instead, the question that I hear very frequently is more of kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Is that person even in the kingdom? Is that person even a Christian? And the way that we're kind of couching our questions today with, you know, can you even be a Christian? Is this person even in the kingdom? And looking back the other direction shows where our priorities lie, just like it showed in Jesus' day. You see, the question that they were asking was essentially, who's going to be the VP? Jesus, you're president, but who's your vice president? Who's going to be number two? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's obvious the progression of the gospel of Matthew is moving that the disciples are seeing the miracles. They're, they're seeing the demons cast out. They're hearing the preaching. They're believing. Peter is, is, is you know, getting the confession right of, of you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, like all of this stuff, they're getting it. And so in them is swirling this idea that, oh my gosh, the kingdom is coming. And it's going to be Jesus overthrowing the Romans. So in the new kingdom, in the new hierarchy that's going to be, Jesus, who's VP? Who's the most important? And it shows something about their hearts that Jesus knows is very wrong. And that condition is pride. There's pride in the hearts of these men. There's pride, and I believe that it's still pride that lingers in our hearts today when we begin asking these questions about, well, is that person even a Christian? 
You see, we ask it in different spheres. We ask political questions. Can you be part of that party, Democrat or Republican, and really be a Christian? We draw that line. Can you vote for that specific politician, for that candidate, and even be a Christian? We, we, we draw the line in the sand. What does that say about us? What, is, what are those questions about, can you be in that party? Can you vote for that candidate and even be a Christian? It suggests something of our understanding of the kingdom. It, it suggests that our understanding of the kingdom is bound up perhaps in politics. That, that Christianity and a party or Christianity and a candidate, that they're married together and they go together they're, and they're inseparable and they belong together. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about, is about a party or a candidate. Just like here in the text, they're asking the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Revealing they don't understand anything about the kingdom of heaven. And I think that some of our questions in the political sphere show we're not understanding much about the kingdom of heaven. We ask these questions socially. Can a Christian repost that post? Can, can you even be a Christian and put that sign in your yard? Can, can you say that? Can you stand with that group? Can you do those things and even be a Christian? It suggests, our questions say something about us, that what it means to be part of the kingdom of God is to take a stand with a group. Or, or, or to, to post something on Facebook, or to tweet something, or to share something, that that's what Christianity, that that's what the kingdom is all about, is where you stand on whatever issue. And it suggests that we don't understand the kingdom of God. We say it financially. You know, like, if, if, if you make that much money, can you even be a Christian? If you spend that much on X, on entertainment, on a house, on a car, on, on, on trips, or whatever, are you even a Christian? And what we do is we go to the other end of the spectrum, and it's the same prideful heart that's saying, we're better than them. We're, we're, we're looking at the other, and there is no love for the other. There is no concern, there is no sympathy, there is no life together that Jesus is about to usher us into. As we look at each one of these questions and what they reveal about us, I encourage you, have you thought about the questions you're asking? Probably for most of us, we're like, well, I'm not really asking any questions, but there has probably been a moment when you saw something or you were in a conversation or, or you saw where somebody stood on something or something they said, a video clip, a YouTube thing, a sermon, a whatever, and you had that moment of, can you even be a Christian? I encourage you to take stock of your questions. What questions are you asking? And to consider that our questions say much about us. And so to ponder, what do your questions suggest about your understanding of the kingdom of God, about Christianity, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Does it suggest that you're rightly following? Or today do we together collectively need the corrective of Jesus then saying to them exactly what they needed to hear? And Jesus says today exactly what we all need to hear. And it's in three parts. 
Truly I tell you, he says in verse 3, unless you turn, unless you turn, turn here is to change one's manner of life with the implication of turning toward God, to change one's ways, to turn to God, to repent. Jesus says, unless you change your ways. He's saying this to his disciples. These are men who have left everything to follow him. I mean, they've said as much. Jesus, we've left everything. He says to them, unless you change, unless you turn and become like children, this is with a, a child, probably a young child. We don't know exactly the age, but, but certainly a small child standing before them. And in our culture today, we esteem children. And, and that's probably a very good corrective in a lot of ways from maybe where cultures have been historically. Because in Jesus' day, the value of children was less than it was for adults. So as a child came and stood before them, this is somebody that in a lot of cultures, you take off your shoe and you, you raise it and you swat it, get out of here, you know? If you've ever gone on a mission trip, I've been in several other contexts where that was exactly where children were. In other cultures today, the adults eat first, the man eats first at the table. Why is that? Because he knows that if he dies, if he becomes unhealthy, then all of the children, including the wife, will be in peril. And so, therefore, they look at children as the most expendable part of a family unit. And so, children are, are not valued in the way here. Today, most parents in this room would say, I would do anything for my child. I would give up my own life for, for the life of my child. If it was between me or my kid eating, I'm giving the food to my kid. That's the way that we think. So, we esteem children. So, when a child comes and stands before us, we say, this is one who's esteemed. This is one that, that is Frank Catalanazza. It's the future. And so we value that. But in Jesus' day, you had to catch the context. The most insignificant person came and stood before them. And he said, unless you become insignificant. The way he goes on to say it, and, and therefore whoever humbles himself like this child. Humility. Because, I mean, think about the, the child Jesus says, come and stand here. And so this child, knowing their insignificant place in a cultural status, they come and they, they stand before all of these men, probably eyes cast down to the ground. And the only reason they're standing there is because Jesus said, come and stand here. And Jesus says, this one, this one heard my words and obeyed. He came and stood right in front of all of you. He's humbled himself. This one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Become like children. So what would the equivalent be today? You know, it's interesting how the table is completely turned. Today, probably the most insignificant people, the way that our culture treats them, would be people in their late 80s and early 90s. That's the, the invisible generation. They've disappeared. They're, they're put away in different places and they're, 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 they're treated as a burden many of the times. 
And so today, I think if, if Jesus were here with us, he would probably have someone in their early 90s come and, and stand before us and say, unless you become like a senior adult, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody would look and say, but, but where's the value? Because a, a senior adult's probably out of money by their 90s. They're probably living on a very fixed income from Social Security, Medicare, for their health insurance, um, not able to really get out and do these things, have a lot of influence. They're, if they did have influence, it's probably waned by that point. Probably a lot of people that respected them have already passed. And, and there before you is somebody that many people would say, there's not a lot of value. And Jesus says, this one is the most valuable in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is just a, a small application that we in our culture are always having to go against the grain and demonstrating the value that God places on every single person in his kingdom is to say culturally in our day, who's invisible? Who, who is most easily overlooked, forgotten? And then we collectively as the church demonstrate the highest value just as you would for that, that young up-and-coming leader who's, who's doing great in his career, is networked well, can make connections, can resource the ministry, all these things. That person is of no greater value than that senior adult who can no longer even come to service. Who maybe right now is watching from home because they can't get out. Because they can't drive their car any longer. And they're forgotten even though they were faithful to this church for years and years and decades and decades, we demonstrate the kingdom in how we treat the least of these, our brothers and sisters. Become like a little child, I think today we become like a senior adult because that's the effect it would have had on the disciples and it's the effect it needs to have on us. To ponder anew what that means to become like a child. But Jesus doesn't leave us to ponder it too long. He, he doesn't leave us to be like, well, I mean, children have fun. You know, like they're easily entertained. So maybe we just need to be more easily entertained, you know. And, and, and to kind of just come up with all of these, what does it mean to be a child? Jesus defines it. He says, whoever humbles himself. And that humility was demonstrated in obedience. And then it makes perfect sense. Jesus then calls them to obedience. The rest of chapter 18 is Jesus rolling out. Here's what the kingdom is going to look like. This is how you are going to behave in my kingdom. How you're going to live. What life together is going to look like if you enter the kingdom. The third part, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's helpful for us to understand that you're either inside or outside the kingdom. Not greatest or least in the kingdom. But Jesus says a few times in the Gospels about this one is the greatest. And it's like, well, which one's the greatest? And it's like, exactly. There's not this higher—there's just greatness. You get to be in the kingdom. You get to have Jesus as king. You, you will forever rule and reign with him. So, yes, greatness for all. Not this hierarchy, not lesser, lower, higher, better, greater, all of those things. 
in or out. And Jesus says, unless you turn and become like a child, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's making it very clear, a line. You're either in or out. And if you are in, Jesus goes on to say three things. And the first is this, to be childlike in the kingdom of heaven means our heavenly father expects us to reveal that each and every child of God is worth leaving the 99 to search for when he or she strays. That's the parable of the lost sheep. You see, he, he charges them after he has told them about the, the severity of leading one of these astray. So he warns them, first of all, not to lead one astray, one of these little ones. It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the depths of the sea than to lead astray one of these little ones. But when one goes astray, our Heavenly Father expects us to reveal that each and every child of God is worth leaving the 99 to search for that one when he or she strays. He says, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. Because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Now, is this talking about guardian angels? That's kind of a, a common conception here. Probably not. If, if that were the idea, we would expect more teaching in the Bible about guardian angels. But we do see angels representing groups. We see the angels of the churches in Revelation. Uh, we see angels attending Jesus, you know, during the wilderness temptation. We see angels at different points in the Old Testament as well of representing groups. And so there's just this idea of there's angels and they are concerned with the affairs of humans, including these little ones. In other words, there's angelic attention. There's heavenly attention to the least of these so therefore, if we're going to pray, God, your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven, then there's going to be a focus and attention on the least of these here on earth among us. That's what he's saying. He's saying you demonstrate kingdom values when you demonstrate that the least of these matter among you. And that when one strays, when one goes astray, when one says this political position is more important than the church, this social position is more important than the church, this pursuit of money, this pursuit of sports, this pursuit of entertainment is more important than the church, that you love that one and you go after them when they stray. You see, that's the imagery here. It's not just simply about those that are invisible among us. As I made mention to a moment ago about senior adults, it says strays. And the consistent biblical imagery of straying is going away from God's direction. That, that, that this one is going their own way. That in love, you go and seek out that one. But you know, it sure is convenient to not go after that one when that one has a different political position than you, better off without them. It, it sure is easier to not go after that one when they posted something you never would have posted, better off without them. It sure is easier when they spend their time and their money in ways you would never spend your time and money to say, better off without them. But that's not kingdom. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not how we are called to love one another. That's not what it means to be a child of God. 
That's not what it means to be childlike and obedient to Jesus, to take a stand of saying, I will go after the one. I will leave the 99 and go after the one. And I'll just be honest, that means work for me this week. Because in my heart, there's been that same tendency of, it would just be easier not to. You see, that's always the case. It would always be easier not to. But that's not humility, that's pride. Second, our Heavenly Father expects us to love one another within the church by confronting sin in a prescribed way. You see, when you go after that one who has strayed, there's a prescribed way for dealing with sin in that life of that person. Additionally, Jesus goes on to say, if your brother sins against you, you've been sinned against, somebody said something, did something to you, go and rebuke him in private. Go and rebuke him in private. Let me be clear. Facebook is not private. Just put that on the table real quick. Go and rebuke him in private. That means you and that individual. That means regardless of your political differences, your social differences on issues, your financial differences, all those things don't matter because you're both in the kingdom. You both are saying Jesus is Lord, and so therefore you've got to come back together. Jesus goes on to say, and if he listens, you've won over your brother. If he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. This is part of the kingdom ethic that we see in the Old Testament being applied in the new. That this will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where we see it in the Old Testament is toward and moving toward what's going to be called the death penalty. We see it in the Old Testament that no one is to be put to death. And we're to feel the weight of that, that sentencing in this moment, because what is coming is a spiritual death. It's more serious than physical death because it's an eternal state. And so the weight of that is being applied in this moment. And then Jesus says, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. You say, bring it out in front of the church. That's where culturally we say, you know, you're really not supposed to judge people, really shouldn't tell about other things. Jesus is saying, this is love. This is love. And so we have to choose in this moment whether to humble ourselves like children and say, Jesus, if you're saying that what it means to love is what we call church discipline of going one to another, then if they won't listen to bring two or three witnesses with me and then to bring it before the church, if that's what you're saying love is and how we are to live in your kingdom, then here I'll stand. Even though it's gonna be uncomfortable. Even though it's not what I want to do, I want to kind of flow with my culture of, you know what, the better off without them. But Jesus, that one matters to you. That one matters to the Father. And so in love, in obedience, in humility, yes. Yes, I will commit myself to this pattern of loving one another in the church by confronting sin in a prescribed 
way. We need that. We need it for the health of the church, and you need it. Each and every one of us, myself included, we need this because I could stray. You could stray. And you need a loving community who knows you, who who spends life with you, who in love is willing to demonstrate the heart of the Father to come after you, just you, who's going astray, to come in love and to say, this is not right. This is not in accordance with your confession that Jesus is Lord. This is going to destroy you. And then if, if you won't listen to them, to then have two or three people that love you, to then come to you and say, please, please return to the Lord. Please return to the church. Do not do this to yourself. You, you are parting ways. You are going your own way over something that you shouldn't. You need people who will love you in that way because the risk is spiritual death that is eternal. So you actually want this. Even though I know culturally we look at it and we say, oh, I don't want this. <laughs> the idea of having to go to somebody else that's offended me or that I just, gosh, I would just rather, can we just go on? Can we just pretend like it didn't happen? Jesus says, no. Our heavenly Father expects us to love one another within the church by confronting sin in a prescribed way. And here it is. And then, in that moment when one returns, I love the sequence of these events. Because Peter is kind of saying what probably everybody else is thinking. In fact, the prescribed number of forgivenesses that were kind of like, you know, circulating in popular culture was three. Somebody offends you three times, you should forgive them. But third strike, you're out. That's it. We still kind of operate by that. Any baseball fans in the room? I mean, like, you know, we really kind of bend to that. Like, hey, third strike, you're out, man. Like, that's it. You know, I'll forgive you three times, but after that, well, Peter's like looking at the fellows, and he's like, hey, Jesus, if I forgive seven times, everybody's like, seven? Wow. And I thought four would be a lot. Peter just went to seven, number of perfection. And he's expecting everybody to kind of look at him and be like, wow, Peter's a forgiver. And you can just feel Jesus being like, oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. And he lovingly pulls him in and says, Peter, not seven times. Seventy times seven. And you say, so some of you are doing quick mental math. And you're like, 490. Okay, so, so 491, I'm done. I don't have to forgive that person anymore. That's not the point. Jesus is not trying to give us like just a higher number of forgivenesses so that you keep a longer ledger of sin. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 keeps no record of wrongs. That's what love is. So it's not about that. It's about this unlimited amount of forgiveness. And you say, well, Chad, how do you know that? Because that's what the story illustrates that Jesus goes on to tell. You see, when, when Jesus dives into this story to talk about the, the amount of debt that this person had, it was an unfathomable amount. In fact, no one in Jesus' world could have even fathomed how a person could end up in that much debt. 
I mean, there weren't enough houses you could buy, enough things you could purchase to get to this magnitude of debt. So Jesus is saying, this dude owes more than even makes any worldly sense that he owes. And that's kind of the point as well. We owe a debt far greater, each and every one of us, than we could ever estimate, that we could ever really understand that we have accumulated. Huge, unspeakable debt. And then in the story, against, I mean, unfathomable, I mean, like the, the financial loss that this owner faces to forgive the debt probably should have bankrupt him. But he forgives it. He forgives it. And it doesn't seem to cost him because his servants remain employed. In fact, they're the ones that come and tell him the bad news that that guy that you forgave this unfathomable debt found a guy that owed him five bucks. That's the equivalent. About five bucks. Picks him up by his shirt and says, you're going to pay every penny. And the man says, give me some more time. And he says, no. And throws him in jail, does exactly what he deserved, but yet he had been forgiven. And the, the owner finds out and says, how could you, if you had been forgiven, if you experienced this sort of forgiveness, shouldn't you have also forgiven? Some of you have been offended over this last year. There's been a lot of things, politically, socially, COVID-19, all these things. There have been plenty of arenas for you to personally be offended maybe by somebody that you love, maybe by somebody in this church, maybe by me or by other staff. There's been plenty of opportunity for offense. And to each and every one of us, myself included, we are reminded by Jesus that our heavenly Father expects us to forgive without limit, just as you have been forgiven all of your sins. You see, this is a timely word for us about the nature of the kingdom. This is a moment for us to demonstrate that our king came to bring forgiveness of sins. It's not about perfection having never offended. Offenses are going to come. I mean, Jesus said that earlier in the passage. Offenses will come. Now, woe to those by whom they come. So he's not promoting it. He's not saying give lots of opportunity for forgiveness, but they're going to come. You're going to be offended and there's going to be times when you are the offender. There's going to be something you say, something you do, something you post, a position you take, a candidate you vote for and endorse that's going to offend someone else. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom works this way. When offended, you go to one another. When sinned against, you forgive. Father, forgive our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the kingdom ethic. The kingdom of God, it looks different. It looks like a humble senior adult in their early 90s who has very little clout, very little influence, but who is infinitely loved by our Father. 
The kingdom looks like when offended, we go in love to one another. The kingdom looks like no matter how many times I'm offended, I forgive because I have been forgiven a debt I can never, ever repay. So how could I hold your debt against you? That's the kingdom. And it meets us here in July of 2021 in the same way it confronted disciples 2,000 years ago. It meets us by calling us to turn from our ways. To become like children that we might enter the kingdom of heaven. For some of you, this response time where we're going to sing and worship may need to be a fresh reminder that you have been forgiven all of your sins. You see, I think that needs to be the starting place. That's why Jesus begins in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18 with, unless you turn and become like a child. It's just like we say when we're sharing the three circles, unless you turn from your brokenness and sin and trust and follow Jesus, you can't be restored to God's good design for your life. So for each one of us, I think there's a, a great power and solidity to, to coming back to this solid foundation of the gospel that we have been forgiven a debt we could never repay. But then it doesn't need to stop there. I encourage you in this time of response to take stock. Is there someone that you have said, I'm better off without them? Is there someone that you have dismissed that was part of the family of faith? maybe even part of, of this faith family that you said we're better off without them, that you are being called by Jesus in his word to forgive and maybe to go and seek out. I would encourage you, make it so granular of a response time right now that you pull out your calendar and you schedule a time to call that individual. Don't just leave it up here, put it on the calendar, schedule it even in this moment that you know right now the Spirit of God is piercing your heart over that specific person that you need to reach out and maybe you need to seek forgiveness or you need to grant it. But it all starts with this reality of entering the kingdom. I wanna invite you to stand as we sing a song of response. But if you're here today and you are saying, I can't, I can't seem to find forgiveness. I can't forgive this person for what they did. I wanna encourage you, come forward during this time. Maybe just spend time kneeling at these steps and praying that the Spirit would fill you fresh to grant forgiveness to someone who has offended you. Maybe come to a pastor or another leader to say, would you pray for me in this specific situation that I'm facing? But let us all respond to the good news of Christ this morning.